Today on Blue 58, the Packers are back in action on Thursday Night Football. Will they be healthy enough to withstand the Lions? How dangerous are those Lions anyway? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink, and I am happy to be with you here for another episode. We have a lot I want to cover in this episode because since we are recording on Tuesday, normally we spend a little bit of time kind of getting a feel for where the Packers are before we dive into what happens in the next week. But the Packers are going to be on Thursday Night Football about 48 hours from when I am recording right now, Tuesday night. So we're going to go ahead and get this one on tape, get it sent out the door, and hopefully, well, maybe we'll have some more thoughts before the game. Maybe we won't. I would lean toward probably not. But in the meantime, got a bunch of things to talk about and think about in this one. Some final thoughts on week three. Real quickly on snap counts, we were about right on where things ended up with just about everybody. Lucas Van Ness didn't play a lot. That's about what we expected for him. The real surprise, I think, was Devontae Wyatt playing fewer snaps than Carl Brooks. I think that's more of a good thing for Brooks than it is a bad thing for Wyatt because of how that game unfolded. Down the stretch, especially in the second half, you're looking, I think, for a little bit more run support. And the Packers, I think, are looking at Brooks there and saying, we want him on the field more than we want Devontae Wyatt on the field. Now, your first-round pick from last year should probably be on the field in that situation more often than not. But if the Packers are saying, look, we think that Brooks can stop the run here, that's probably a good thing for the Packers' overall defense overall as the Packers still try to build Wyatt into more of a complete player than just the kind of one-dimensional pass rusher he's been to this point. That is a lot of spin to get it to the point where you can say, what, a fifth-round rookie, sixth-round rookie, day three pick um, is getting more snaps than Devontae Wyatt is. But shoot, we got to spin it somehow, I guess. Um, but it's, it's a good thing for Brooks, I would say, at the at the very least. Um, the kind of B-side to that story is that Colby Wooden only played like 10 snaps on Sunday, which says, I think, a lot about where they think he is right now. If Wyatt is option two stopping the run, Wooden is a distant third. Another note on Sunday's game, I can't believe I did not mention Keyshawn Nixon's end around on Sunday. The talk has been for like a year now that Keyshawn Nixon wants to do literally everything, and that is a fun part of his game, a fun part of who he is as a player. The Packers did get him involved on offense. The Saints apparently not noticing that he was out there. Is there anything more obvious than a defensive player coming onto the field on offense than that that guy is going to get the ball or be a significant part of the play? News apparently to the Saints because on his first career offensive touch, Keyshawn Nixon goes for 11 yards, just one short of a rushing explosive play. Speaking of explosive plays, a couple of notes on those coming out of week three. A.J. Dillon recorded his first explosive play of 2023 on Sunday, and it was almost completely fake. He had a 14-yard run on Sunday, but it was actually a backwards pass that was only backwards because Jordan Love had to get the ball out real quick, and then it traveled backwards. It ends up being a lateral, which makes it a run, which makes the 14-yard gain a 14-yard run, not a 14-yard reception. Because of how we break down our explosive plays, that means Dylan gets an explosive gain on the ground. A lot of Dylan's statistical production was kind of fake on Sunday. He is credited for 33 yards rushing on 11 attempts, which is not great, obviously, but if 14 of those came on a play that it was actually a backwards pass, that means, carry the one, that the actual total for him rushing was 10 carries for 19 yards. Not great. 
Finally, Jaden Reed, after two more explosive plays on Sunday, two explosive gains for the Packers, now has four on the year leading the team. Nobody else has more than two. As a ballpark comparison, Romeo Dobbs finished last season with 10, so Reed well on his way to matching Dobbs' rookie production. He seems to be the most consistent big hitter for the Packers uh, heading into week four of their still very young season. A couple of questions that we have sourced from our Discord server before we dive into a discussion about the um, Detroit Lions. First and foremost, um, another question about snap counts, and I think this gives us a nice dovetail to go a little bit deeper on uh, Patrick Taylor, so let's do it. Uh, First question comes from Old Packers fan. In fact, all of these are from our loyal listener Old Packers fan today, so we're just going to go ahead and give him a big shout-out listening in from Canada, I believe, right now. He's been all over the world in the time that he has been a member of our Discord server, and we'd love to have him. And we would love to have you as well. Patreon.com slash ThePowerSweep, whole deal there, or ThePowerSweep.substack.com, become a paid supporter either of those places. You get to be in it. Anyway, the question. Any insights from the snap counts through three games? Taylor's usage, Patrick Taylor's usage, suggests he may be added to the 53, but at whose expense? Manuel Wilson, Malik Heath. How do you read Brooks having more snaps than Devontae Wyatt in week three? We talked about Brooks and Wyatt there in passing, but let's talk about Patrick Taylor and how he shapes up here on the 53. Now, the reason you have to have this question is because Patrick Taylor is out of practice squad elevations for 2023. They've burned all three already. Thanks, I think, in large part to um, Aaron Jones' injury here early in the season. So you got to have Patrick Taylor out there because apparently the Packers do not trust A.J. Dillon in crucial situations. And related to that, Matt LaFleur is kind of full of it on A.J. Dillon because someone asked him why Patrick Taylor was out there instead of A.J. Dillon in the Packers' two-minute situation. And he said, basically, well, it's just because of how we're playing. It's not that we like him better than than A.J. Dillon. It's just like what we thought we had to do at the time. And I would have full confidence in A.J. Dillon to be out there in that situation, which is, on its face, completely ridiculous. You thought it was because of how you were playing. So you went with a guy that you thought would fit that situation. You decided that guy was Patrick Taylor and not AJ Dillon. It wasn't, it wasn't anything that we should read into, but there are plenty of things to read into there. It wasn't because of, you know, what Patrick Taylor was doing that Dillon wasn't okay. Then you just put him out there for no reason. And you would have full confidence to have AJ Dillon out there instead of Patrick Taylor. Okay. Then why did you have Taylor out there instead of Dillon? Like, are you saying you just did it for no reason? Anyway, I think LaFleur is a smart guy. He didn't do it for no reason. He did it because Patrick Taylor was more reliable in that game than A.J. Dillon was. I know that's something that you can't necessarily get up there and say, but don't give us the nonsense about, it could have been anybody. Well, it couldn't have been. It wasn't. You chose for it to be this guy. You could just say, like a good way to spin it, you don't even have to dump on A.J. Dillon. We just said, we thought Patrick Taylor gave us a better matchup in that situation than A.J. did. We wanted to move the ball. We wanted to move fast. We needed some pass protection, and Patrick was doing a really great job. Make it about Patrick Taylor. Don't make it about A.J. Dillon. Anyway, if Taylor is going to continue to be in the Packers' plans for Sundays going forward, or in this case Thursday, they need to get him to the 53-man roster, and you have to have a corresponding move. My guess would be at this point, having thought about it a little bit more from Sunday, probably someone heading to injured reserve to free up a roster spot. Perhaps Zane Anderson, who's been a long-term, it seems, DNP in practice lately, previously talked about him as a cut candidate. If they want to keep him around, injured reserve would be an option. Maybe they just straight-up cut Emmanuel Wilson. 
The knee-jerk reaction there is, oh, he's probably going to get claimed, but in reality, probably not. And even if he does, it sounds kind of callous, but so what? At this point, you're talking about your fourth running back. If Aaron Jones is your top guy, A.J. Dillon isn't doing great, but he's firmly ahead of Taylor and Wilson, and Taylor is a fairly limited player. Wilson being behind those guys, I mean, what are you really losing at that point? Could you find another version of that guy? Yeah, probably. So the corresponding move, probably somebody injured reserve, but if they were going to cut Emmanuel Wilson and try to get him to the practice squad, it wouldn't be that big of a surprise. I think the second thing you have to ask about Taylor then is what is his role going forward? Aaron Jones is looking like he's going to be back in the lineup. A.J. Dillon is out there doing whatever A.J. Dillon does at this point. We don't have to continue to have that discussion for right now. So then what is Patrick Taylor in this offense, in this, well, in the special teams, it's pretty obvious. They want him out there on the, on the punt team for blocking, stuff like that. But then how much does he actually play? And I don't know because we haven't had him really out there with Jones and Dillon for enough games to get a, a sense of where they want him to fit in. We don't know what the rule is. or what the role is. But figuring that out is going to be part of it because I think they definitely want to have him on the 53-man roster. Second question here is what would the fan response have been instead of if instead of Blake Groupe missing for the Saints loss at the end, it was Daniel Carlson, or not Daniel Carlson, that's the brother, Anders Carlson, had been the victim of the missed kick. I expect this to be played out this season. I expect it too. What indeed would have happened? What would have been the reaction? This is There's no answer here. But I, I'm intrigued by this question because we are going to have to ride this anxiety at some point this season. I talked about this after the game. There were two, question, or two kicks I expected beyond a shadow of a doubt to be missed. Carlson's go-ahead PAT to put the Packers up 18-17. to 17, And Grupe's uh, missed field goal there at the end. Ended up one for two there. But... It, it almost feels like an inevitability that Carlson, given how rough he was in training camp, is going to miss a kick and just the way things work out, probably a big one at this point. So we are going to have to ride this anxiety at some point this season. Carlson is a rookie and he's a rookie kicker and that's a volatile mix. So I don't know what the reaction would have been if it had been Carlson missing that key kick, but part of the beauty of the Packers going for two like they did is that it didn't really matter as much if they did miss the kick because he didn't end up having the gotta have it PAT. Say if the say if the Packers did just go for one on both of those attempts, and Carlson is kicking to tie down sixteen to seventeen instead of going to head going ahead eighteen to seventeen because you're tied at seventeen. The complexion of that kick changes. But in this case, even if the Packers miss the second PAT, we're still talking about going to overtime. I think the longer that Carlson goes as a solid kicker here, the more equity he's buying himself in the minds of fans and people watching this team. Because that's just how it goes. You feel more comfortable with a guy missing if he makes a whole bunch of kicks. So I guess let's just hope he continues to make those kicks. Final question here. While likely premature, how does Luke Musgrave compare to the best Packers tight ends? In my recollection, Paul Kaufman and Jermichael Finley were the best pass catchers. Musgrave could eclipse the best yardage total by either, maybe in his rookie year. I couldn't recall any other tight ends that had a lot of receiving yards. Kaufman was just over 800 yards, which seems possible for Musgrave. 
Keith Jackson was probably the best tight end pass catcher, but not when he played for the Packers. Am I leaving someone out? And end questioner, end quote there. This is where I really appreciate some of our older fans in the Discord, like or old Packers fan here, who has seen a lot of football and has a lot of perspective on who's good over time. Fortunately, I don't have the same benefit there, but I think there is a lot of stuff we can just look at statistically and I think kind of in their overall body of work that might give us some comparisons here. So far, I think Musgrave, at least statistically, is right up there with some of the best tight ends we've seen in Green Bay. So far through three games, he's on pace for 62 catches and about 700 yards over 17 games, which is a pretty darn good season. It's not like Travis Kelsey-type numbers, not as great as some of the really greats even in Packers history yet, but for a rookie... You will take that for sure, especially given what we've seen. And from my perspective, we've seen three big things from Musgrave so far. He's clearly athletic. He clearly can create some matchup problems. Two throws from Sunday really stand out in that respect. There is the the overthrow from Jordan Love when Musgrave was just running down the steam, the 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 seam. Excuse me, full head of steam there, tripping myself up with similar sounding words there, but just just chugging down the seam, wide open ready to catch and run, and Love just misses him. Uh, But that is something, that kind of speed up the middle is not something we've had from a Packers tight end. Even like when Robert Tunyon was in his physical prime, like 2019-2020, he could not run like that. And the Packers have not had a guy that could run like that, even close to it. You're talking Jared Cook back in 2016, seven years ago now, Andrew Michael Finley back in 2011, 12, 13 at the peak of his power. So it's been a while. So he is clearly athletic. He can create those matchup problems. You had that route. There was also, I don't know, it may have been on a third down, but it was like and eight to go or and six to go, something like that. And the Packers are going right to left as we looked at it on TV. And Musgrave just ran a little out route on the left side of the formation. And it was just a... I am more athletic than you completion because he got downfield and got out of his breaks and love put the ball on him. And there was just nothing the linebacker could do. It wasn't like a spectacular route or some overpowering play. Musgrave was just quicker and faster than the guy who was covering him. And he was open as a result. He can create those mismatches. But finally, I think we've seen that he is still just figuring it out as a player. He does not know what he can and can't get away with on an NFL field yet. And that's to be expected of a rookie playing in his first month of professional football. You just don't know. The geometry of the field changes with the people that are out there. It's kind of a weird phenomenon, but anybody who's played sports, I think, understands what it's like. It's like going from junior varsity to varsity or high school sports to college sports. Everyone else is up a level of speed and physicality, and you need to learn how your game fits into that. And Musgrave is not there yet, but none of the Packers rookies really are. We see that with Lucas Van Ness. We see that with Jaden Reed. We see that with with Musgrave. We've seen that with Colby Wooden for sure. Carl Brooks, you could just you can name it. The only guy who really doesn't have to adjust his game is Anders Carlson, and even he has to adjust because the hashtags are, are narr- not the hashtags, uh, the, the hash marks in the middle of the field are narrower. The the uprights, I don't know, are they the same as they are in college football now? I, I feel like they changed that not too long ago. But broadly speaking, his job is the most similar to what it was in college because kickball through uprights remains the goal regardless of where you're kicking from. You don't have to worry about people being bigger, stronger, faster as much as a kicker. The point is Musgrave is figuring that out. 
everybody does. Everybody's got to do it. Everybody's got to go through it. And the fact that he gets to go through it right from the beginning here, get a lot of reps as the Packers' top tight end, it's only going to speed that process along. So to get to the actual part of the question here, how does he compare to these guys that our questioner asked? Paul Kaufman, Jermichael Finley, Keith Jackson, other guys. Well, statistically, again, he's right up there. Paul Kaufman has the best numbers statistically, probably, depending on how you want to slice it. You can quibble. But 54 catches for 814 yards and 11 touchdowns back in 1983, that's a pretty good season. Keith Jackson doesn't have the volume stats, but he was old already in 1996. Bit of a timeshare with Mark Chimura. Plenty of receiving options around in that Packers offense in 1995 and 1996, so the raw numbers may not have quite been there. But still immensely productive, a very productive player for the Packers there in the mid-90s. Jermichael Finley, probably the best pure comparison for Musgrave. Uh, Back in 2011, 55 catches, 767 yards, 8 touchdowns, 13.9 yards per catch. Absurd number for a tight end, especially in Green Bay. Just haven't seen production like that really before or since, though. Kaufman way up there, too. Different kind of player, though. Uh, Jared Cook, a good one to remember, only played 10 regular season games in 2016, so his stats kind of uh, depressed as a result. But in the playoffs that year, 18 catches, 229 yards, and two touchdowns over three games. Then I would actually throw out, at least statistically, Jimmy Graham in 2018. 55 catches, 636 yards, and two touchdowns. He was actually on pace for nearly 800 yards when he broke his thumb in week 10 of that season, which is something I think a lot of people forget about. He never played more than 72% of the snaps in a game the rest of the way, dropped from where he had been before, only started three of the last six games. His yards per catch dropped by five over the, like between the first 10 games and the last six games of that season. He just wasn't the same uh, physically. So at least statistically, he would have been up there with some of the great performers in Packers history, but um, he, he just wasn't. And I think there were a lot of other reasons for that too. But Um, I think Musgrave can compete with any of these guys. Of this list, I think I'd be most interested to see Keith Jackson and Paul Kaufman in the modern game. Both of them pretty short, both listed at 6'2 on Pro Football Reference, but Kaufman pretty light, too, in the 220s to 230s range, depending what sources you look at. You can believe that or not, depending on how much stock you put in old measurements and stuff like that. But, man, uh, that would be a great complimentary piece to have kind of talking about like that um, maybe like Josiah DeGuara F tight end um, quasi fullback sort of player in the modern game, but back in the seventies and eighties, it it didn't exist in the same sort of way. Uh, A fullback was a fullback and a tight end was a tight end. And you've got Paul Kaufman out there catching 800 yards worth of passes uh, for the Packers in the early eighties. What does that look like in 2023? That's 40 years later now. They don't know, but I would be intrigued to see. Let's talk about the Lions and how the Packers play against the Lions. Because the Pack, in theory, is back. In theory, at least. Well, part of the Pack. A a small part. Maybe more. We'll see. A lot of caveats there. The point is, Aaron Jones and Christian Watson look like they are probably going to play Thursday. Christian Watson says he is. Romeo Dobbs says he expects Aaron Jones out there. Matt LaFleur says nothing's different from where it was in week three. Take that however you like it. I choose to take it that the Packers are probably going to have one or both of them on Thursday night. Jones probably the more likely, but it kind of looks like Watson's going to be out there too. 
This is weird because it changes the Packers' offense in ways that we really don't understand. That's kind of the weird thing about where the Packers are right now. You've got a promising start from Jordan Love. Interesting start. He's, he's done a lot of things well, and he's done a lot of those things well, mainly without Aaron Jones, who was missing for a lot of that Bears game, just even even if he was out there, even if he was helping the Packers at times, he was also not out there consistently in that game. Uh, A.J. Dillon was, was right up there, the lead dog for a lot of that game. Jones just kind of came in and did really impactful cameos. So the Packers offense is going to be different this week, and we really don't know what different actually means. You've also got other guys potentially coming back. Practice today, Jair Alexander was listed as a limited participant. Zach Tom, for whatever his injury situation is, was listed as limited as well, and so was Carrington Valentine. Those are some pretty big ifs. If Valentine can go, you probably only have to call up one practice squad defensive back to take over and handle things in the secondary. You probably go with Corey Valentine again just to to try to sort things out there in the secondary and then just have both of them go as long as they can with what they've got. And that all kind of leads us to the Lions. Because in addition to the Packers being a little bit uncertain, in addition to just the chaos that comes with playing on Thursday night, you've got the Detroit Lions, who under Dan Campbell kind of make me think of one of the newer Planet of the Apes movies. I had to actually look this up to see which one this takes place in. It's in uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, if that matters to you. There's a scene in that movie where this is an inelegant description, but a monkey gets a hold of a machine gun. And at first, the human characters are kind of like, oh, okay, well, this can't be happening. And then it goes worse from there. The Detroit Lions remind me of that because I would hesitate to call them a good team. I don't think we can also really call them a bad team, but they are a team that can mess you up in ways that you don't really understand. For instance, check on the Kansas City Chiefs in week one, losing to the Detroit Lions in prime time to start their season as defending Super Bowl champs. That's pretty embarrassing, isn't it? The The Kansas City Chiefs, even if they were without Chris Jones, even if they were playing a little bit banged up, even if Patrick Mahomes has an off night, the Chiefs, at home in week one, should handle the Detroit Lions. They should. And yet, that's what you get with the high-variance teams like the Detroit Lions. And this has always been the sort of thing that has scared me as a Packers fan over the years. It's not the juggernaut teams, was thinking about last year when the Packers were getting set to play the Buffalo Bills. We had a a lively discussion among Packers fans in in our Discord server about, you know, how scary the Buffalo Bills were a couple weeks out. We're in, I think they played the Bills in week six last year. It doesn't really matter, week six, week eight, week eight, something like that. And already a couple weeks earlier, we were talking about how scary the Bills looked. And somebody asked, like, how scared are you of the Bills? And I said, I'm not scared of the Bills at all. It'd be like the dinosaurs being afraid of the meteor that was going to hit the planet. What are you going to do? Like, we're not scared of the Bills because they're way better than we are. Like, what are we going to do about it? We can't get better at this point. We can try hard and believe in ourselves, but the Bills are going to be what they are. And if they're going to steamroll us, that's it. Same kind of goes with the, the games you should win. 
week one, in retrospect, was not an opponent the Packers should be scared of. And heading into the second game, yeah, you respect a team that's down like the like the Bears or or other similarly bad teams throughout the NFL. You got to take care of business, but you know what you're going to get. But the Lions, a team like the Lions, and maybe this is just how the Dan Campbell era is going to be, but maybe not. Maybe there's something more to it than that. They're just going to be that unpredictable chimp with a machine gun. Is he going to shoot you? Is he going to, you know, shoot it into the ceiling? Is he going to put it down and walk away? What's going to happen? You don't really know. And just that's how it is. That's how it feels playing the Detroit Lions. And maybe part of that starts with their quarterback. Jared Goff is not quite, he's not not having a career renaissance in Detroit. Last year is 4,400 yards, 29 touchdowns, seven touchdowns. Hey, you can probably live with that. It's not what you're necessarily going for because some of that's fake. Some of that production is is the scheme. Some of that is just playing in a fairly weak division last year. But that's, that's pretty big counting stats. And not doing terrible either this year, though he can occasionally turn into a pumpkin at times as well. 72 completions on 103 attempts, 819 yards, five touchdowns, two interceptions. Okay. This is all masterminded by offensive coordinator Ben Johnson. He's been with the Lions for a while, has survived a couple different coaching changes, started with an, as an offensive quality control guy back in 2019, and now at age 37 is in his second year as the Lions offensive coordinator. And he's probably going to be a head coach sooner than later. The difference, or the defense, the difference, the the defense here is a bit of a mixed bag so far in Detroit. Kind of mixed numbers across the board, middling across the board, except against the run. Maybe that's because people just haven't wanted to run against them because last year they were so historically bad against the pass. Not that the Packers could do anything about that. But, to be fair to the Lions, I don't think we really know anything about anybody's defense at this point because it's been three weeks and they've had Kansas City and Seattle and Atlanta and have done, you know, different jobs against all three of them. So I think what we really got to do, if we want to preview this team and we got to kind of do it with respect to uh, just the chaos that is Thursday night football. I don't know if we really want to dive super deep on scheme or on tendencies or on stuff like that because Thursday night football tends to be so wild. There's so many injuries on both sides. There's so many just different factors that don't give us a typical matchup here. I think the way to talk about this Packers-Lions game is to talk about three notable players on each side of the ball for Detroit. So let's start with their defense. We were just talking about defense. Let's talk talk about it here. Uh, The first guy I want to talk about is Aiden Hutchinson because he's a guy we've been sort of softly following in the manner that we followed Brian and uh, uh, Rashawn Gary, not, not Brian Burns. We were fo- we've been following him whenever the players, the Packers play the Lions, kind of in the same way that we've checked in on Montez Sweat and Brian Burns every time either Washington or Carolina plays the Packers. Because the Lions seemed pretty clear last year that they were going to go with an edge rusher at the top of the draft, and picking where they were, they basically had their choice between who I thought were the, were the top two edge rushers, and they took the guy that I preferred less. They took Aiden Hutchinson over Oregon's Kayvon Thibodeau. 
I wondered at the time if that was a mistake. That wouldn't have been what I would have done, but I think it's worth checking in. So where is Hutchinson here in year two? Through three weeks, his raw pressure rate is up to 15%, right right near 15%. It's like 15.98%, something like that. That's raw pass rush, not true pass sets, but that is a significant increase from last year where he was just a hair under 10% in terms of pressure rate. Now bring that up because Kayvon Thibodeau in New York was the other option on the edge last year, and his pressure numbers were are down significantly compared to last year. He was right about in the ballpark where Hutchinson was last year. It was like fractional percentage points difference between the two. But Thibodeau is down to about 5% this year, while Hutchinson has gone up. Now, I realize there's a lot of mitigating factors to that. Uh, Pressure numbers aren't everything, but it is a data point as to where that discussion is going. Hutchinson has been good for the Lions, I guess, is the overall point here. And I think they're pretty happy with the guy that they got near the top of the draft this year. What about some of their draft picks from this year? Let's start with Iowa linebacker Jack Campbell. We'll talk about him a little bit more in a second in relation to the to the Lions' other first-round pick, Jameer Gibbs. But the Lions took Campbell 18th overall this spring, which was, I think, a little bit higher than most people expected him to go, given the overall movement in the conversation around what traditional off-ball linebackers bring to your defense. The Lions have already started to move him around a little bit. They spent a lot of time with him on the edge of their defense last week as a, as a pass rusher, which is noteworthy for, I think, a couple of reasons. First, it might be the better idea for him long term. He seems to have the build for it. It's a more valuable thing for your defense. And he did a lot of blitzing type stuff at Iowa. So it's something that he has experience with. But secondly, it's not necessarily a great look to be giving your first round pick a different job in week three of his rookie season because he can't unseat the guy at his original position. If you already had a guy who was going to take up all these reps and and be there, why would you take a guy who's not playing a valuable position anyway, who's not going to get a ton of reps there early in the season or, or maybe ever if you end up switching him more to an edge rusher type thing? Something to watch there with Jack Campbell. The third person I want to mention is Brian Branch, a safety who was of interest to many in the Packers pre-draft world, who was a bit of a tough fit for the Packers because he was primarily a slot, basically a slot corner. And I think next year when we do our draft stuff, we got to, we got to be a lot. We got to maybe just do an entirely different episode for the slot guys versus the traditional safeties, because it's such, it's just a different position. Guys get listed at safety, but they're playing corner. I mean, functionally, if that's what we're if that's how we're breaking down the position, then Keyshawn Nixon is a safety and not a corner. And maybe that's the right thing to say, but it it muddies the waters around the conversation. Especially as it pertained to the Packers last spring, because everybody says, for good reason, the Packers need safety. Brian Branch is the best safety consensus, I think, in this class. Why aren't the Packers interested in Brian Branch? Well, That's why. Even in his young NFL career, he's played almost exclusively slot corner. He's not doing traditional safety stuff. But there's an added layer here because, although you may have forgotten, the Detroit Lions took Branch with a pick acquired from the Packers. The Packers originally held pick 45. They traded it to the Detroit Lions for picks 48 and 159. Then they turned around and traded pick 48 to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for picks 50 and 179. 
the net of all this, the Packers get essentially for pick 45, pick 50, pick 159, and pick 179, which turned into Jaden Reed, Dontavion Wicks, and Carl Brooks. Would you take those three guys over one Brian Branch? Recognizing that Branch has been really good so far, pretty solid defensive rookie of the year candidate. How do you how do you measure that out? I I think I'd probably take those three guys, but I'm willing to be convinced the other way too. And that is part of the long term conversation. What if Branch ends up being an all pro whatever he is? What if he's just a really, really good player for a really, really long time and Reed and Wicks and Brooks are just okay? How do you measure that versus having Branch, especially when the Packers had a need at safety, but maybe not the kind of safety that Branch plays? And how do you measure that down further when you're talking just about the draft in general and you're talking about weighing safety versus basically just looking at the top two picks here? A branch versus Reed. It's it's a safety versus a wide receiver. Now, normally, I think you would say the receiver is probably more valuable than the safety there overall, given where the passing offense is in the NFL. Maybe not. Maybe you don't. But if you drill down another level and say, okay, Branch, he's not like a safety safety. He's a slot corner. But Reed also isn't like a receiver receiver. He's a slot wide receiver. How do you measure that? I don't have an answer there either, but it's part of the conversation, and I think all of that conversation is interesting as it pertains to Branch and the Packers and and how this matchup all goes. Flipping over to offense, we got to talk about Amon Ross St. Brown just because, well, in part because his name is fun to say. It's a fun name. It's a cool name. Um, but he is their best offensive player. Almost exactly, with the difference of like one snap, a 50-50, slit, slot, a 50-50 split between the slot and out wide. Uh, this year, a versatile player. He's averaging a career high in yards per route run so far this year. He's got his highest average depth of target as well, up both significantly over last year. And I mentioned him in passing just because he was taken, of course, about 30 picks behind Amari Rodgers. And if the Packers hit on that Rodgers pick, either because Rodgers pick the Rodgers pick is good or they take uh, Nico Collins, one of the next two wide receivers off the board, or Amon Ross St. Brown, who was the third receiver off the board after Rodgers, what happens with a guy like Brian Branch? What happens with that sort of pick? Because do the Packers go after a guy like Jaden Reed if they've got a guy who can play in the slot? We don't know. Interesting sort of interlocking things. that should remind you that all of this draft stuff is so interrelated. It's hard to just say the Packers should have taken this guy instead of this guy at this time because there's so many different layers to all of it. Speaking of layers, how about tight end Sam Laporta in Detroit? The Packers were in the tight end market pretty pretty obviously this spring. Everyone seemed to think that they would take a tight end at some point, and they did. They took Luke Musgrave at 42. They could have taken Sam Laporta had he been available but he went eight picks earlier at 34 to the Detroit Lions. Now, the Packers were, in theory, interested in Laporta, though they did not have him out for a visit, though Brian Gutekunst, and, uh, general manager, and director of college scouting, Matt Malaspina, were there for Laporta's pro day. Laporta is three inches shorter, about eight to 10 pounds lighter than Musgrave, so factor that in as well. But he was taken eight picks ahead of Musgrave, too. So far this season, 18 catches, 186 yards, and a touchdown. Musgrave, 11 catches for 124 yards. Pretty similar breakdown in where they are playing, too. 102 snaps 
in line for Laporta, so lined up as a traditional tight end. 27 snaps in the slot, 35 out wide. Musgrave has played 93 snaps in line, 53 out in the slot, and just nine split out wide as a receiver. So Musgrave, much more your on-the-line or in-the-slot tight end. Laporta moving all over the place for the Lions. Another pair of careers worth watching as the these things continue to play out. Now, the final one I want to mention, and you might have a guess here because they've all had pretty significant connections to where the Packers were picking in the draft, is Jameer Gibbs, the Lions' first of their two first-round picks this spring. And he went one pick in, in, in front of the Packers' Lucas Van Ness. And I think that is the interesting discussion point as it pertains to what the Lions are doing here. In a vacuum, I'm pretty, I think, I feel like I've moved on this a lot too, but I'm pretty sympathetic to the idea of getting a really good running back. I don't know if I'm fully on team running backs don't matter. I think they matter less than just about every other offensive position, but that's a very different thing than just saying they they don't matter at all. And I don't think that they don't matter at all. Just look at the difference between Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon. I think you could block up a play the same way and Aaron Jones would get more out of it than A.J. Dillon. I think you could block a play badly and Aaron Jones would still get more out of it than A.J. Dillon. The running backs can matter. It's just that running is less valuable than passing, but that's a different sort of discussion. However, the Lions at 12 here take Jameer Gibbs, which is, if he turns out to be a great player, okay, you got a great player, that's good. But they took a running back ahead of Van Ness, a a well-regarded edge rusher who's got freaky athletic traits at the position, Broderick Jones, a well-regarded offensive lineman, Will McDonald, another great edge rusher prospect. You've also got in the mix there Emmanuel Forbes, a corner, and Christian Gonzalez, a corner. Before you get to 18, and there you've got Jack Campbell. But going after Campbell, you also have Kalijah Kansi, the great pit interior pass rusher, uh, Jackson Smith and Jigba, and Quentin Johnson. So the Campbell pick aside, the running uh, the the running backs, the Lions picked a running back ahead of two well-regarded edge rushers, the best remaining offensive lineman available, a couple good defensive back candidates, a great interior pass rusher, and two very well-regarded, very athletic wide receivers. I think it's fair to ask if you are in your pre-peak building phase, like I think the Lions are. I don't think they think that they've arrived yet. I don't think they would even say that they are Super Bowl contenders yet. Is it really a good idea to say, okay, 11th overall, baby, it's running back time. Now is the time. We got to make sure we get a running back right now when there are all these other building block positions out there. It seems like it'd be a much better idea to really stock up on some of those studs at high leverage positions. And this is not just me ragging on the Lions here because the same question could be asked of the Packers if we rewind to the 2022 NFL draft. Because the Packers, 22nd overall in 2022, took linebacker Quay Walker, who has been very good, but they also took him ahead of George Karlaftis, the edge rusher out of Purdue, Daxton Hill, the safety, Lewis Seen, the safety, And then pretty soon you're on to Christian Watson, so it starts to get a little bit meaningless there. But relative to the other positions available, 
I mean, you could even talk about Tyler Smith and Tyler Linderbaum, a couple offensive linemen going after Walker there. Offensive line help would be kind of nice to have at this point. That is an interesting question. So a lot of different interesting pieces on the Detroit Lions, and a lot of them have connections to the Green Bay Packers in a weird kind of way. So who's going to win in this game? Buddy, I got no idea. Um, I, I would like to say the Packers, but in a chaotic game, which it feels like we're going to get, it, it's really, it's hard to pick the Packers for sure. If I had to, to put down money on the game, I don't, I wouldn't. I think I would probably pick the Lions just because, I don't know, I've been wrong about everything so far. So having hope about the Packers, maybe that just feels wrong too. I don't know. Thursday night football just makes me kind of feel gross and I don't know what to do with it. And I don't know what to do with the Packers or the Lions right now. So what I'm going to do is this. I am going to put in a pizza after my kids go to bed on Thursday night. And we're going to see how the rest of the evening goes from there. If I had to, again, I would pick the Lions. But I'm not going to feel good about any pick. What I can say for sure is that this is not going to be boring. This is all the the makings of a game that's going to be weird. A game that's going to have unexpected things happen. A game that, yeah, might get ugly. But I feel like even if it does get ugly, it's going to get ugly in really interesting ways and ways that we just have not seen before. And maybe that ends up being kind of a defense of Thursday night football because even if it's bad football, it's not boring. It's different. That's for sure. We'll see. So Thursday night, I think it's going to be different. That's all I've got for you in this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you tuning in. I would appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. It's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in the conversation you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.